I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. As the first Latino CEO of a major U.S. airline, Oscar Munoz of United Airlines is indeed a barrier breaker. He's now executive chair of United Airlines. But there are parts of his historic rise that never came into public view until now. In his book, Turnaround Time, Uniting an Airline and Its Employees in the Friendly Skies, Munoz writes, quote, My story is a quintessentially American one, though it began in Mexico, and reveals that he came to the United States undocumented. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on May 10th, Munoz talks about running United Airlines, the heart attack he suffered just a month on the job, why he downplayed his heritage during his rise in corporate America, and why he's fully embracing it now. Raising your own children and your children realizing where they come from and how important it has become to them to, uh, to embrace their heritage. And, understand, and as the world has changed, it, it's become easier for me to do. And I feel really uh, unburdened to be able to tell the story and to somehow, in my own way, promote that this is not an immigrant story. It is not a business story. It is, a, it is an American story that's only, I mean, it's like our, our country is, a, is an incredible place. So your book, Turnaround Time, offers a lot of insight into United Airlines and what you learned about leadership. But you also go into great detail about where you came from and how that shaped your worldview. Let me start with that quote I mentioned in the intro. My story is quintessentially an American one, though it began in Mexico. You also write, it may seem strange to most people that I would want to keep such an integral part of my identity quiet for so long, even more surprising perhaps, that it could be possible to do so in this age of social media and the internet with all the digital breadcrumbs we leave behind. For most immigrants, however, especially those hailing from the Southern Hemisphere, such sentiments will ring a painfully familiar bell. Um, Mr. Munoz, why did you hide that part of your life uh, and for so long? You know, it is one of the, uh, the regrets that you have in life. Uh, I grew up in a period of time in the business world where we didn't have the DE&I sort of initiatives. We did not have um, the concepts uh, that are so familiar to many today. And uh, being of Mexican descent, being in the world of finance, uh, there's this you know, perception that you know, folks from my background aren't, quote, smart enough to do these things. And we've seen that across a lot of different uh, underrepresented minorities or perceptions are further than that. So it just didn't seem to suit the conversation. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. So it was just fine to just continue on as, you know, clearly my heritage is obvious, but I didn't really uh, detail any of those concepts about my background and my uh, upraising. I just, it didn't feel like the right thing to do at the time. Mm -hmm. So then what happened to change your view that your heritage, well, let me ask you this. It's one thing to not bring it up simply because no one else is asking you. And it's another to not bring it up because in some way or another, you're ashamed of your background. Was the latter playing into your silence on your personal story? You know, uh, that's a great, that's a great thought. And I, I'd be, I, I would be disingenuous to say that that didn't come up, but the, 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 uh, the perception of people and the outward uh, views about people of Mexican heritage when I was uh, was growing up 
were 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 bad. Um, and the African American community knows the words that are used, and and not too dissimilar words used in the Hispanic community. And so there was a level of trying to differentiate uh, myself. And my dad, in his wonderful wisdom, very early on moved us out of the inner city and went to sort of a suburb of Orange County in California. And we lived basically amongst people that were not like us. So uh, while everybody knew we were different, we didn't really talk much about it. So, you know, there's probably a, a level of, 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 of shame issues there. But predominantly, when you grow up in that environment, everybody around you is generally white. Uh, you adopt all those things. I mean, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I, I surfed. I played football and volleyball. And, and uh, it was just, again, a quintessential American story. Um, that it just happens that my background was deeply rooted in an immigrant. And so to your question of why do you eventually come to that conclusion? Well, you know, it's taken a long time. And I think raising your own children and your children realizing where they come from and how important it has become to them to uh, to embrace their heritage and understand. And as the world has changed, it, it's become easier for me to do. And now that I'm no longer quite the public figure that I am and that I was in running a large organization, I feel really uh, unburdened to be able to tell the story and to somehow in my own way promote that this is not an immigrant story. It is not a business story. It is a it is an American story that only I means like our, our country is, a, is an incredible place. And the fact that someone like me can come from those backgrounds with those early days of avoiding, in essence, who I was and being able to now broadcast it broadly and be able to you know, trumpet the fact that this is important, but for the ability to come across the country, you know, across the border, you know, go through school and do all the things that I've done, um, I, I am pretty confident that someone like me has created quite a bit of value for this country, uh, and and so uh, it's it's been a it's a, been an interesting emotional journey for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, well, without question, you've created value. Uh, for this country, Mr. Munoz. You know, you you were the first person in your family uh, to graduate from college, uh, and you described your upbringing as blue collar. You were also, as we've been talking about, a, a Mexican immigrant. So a blue collar Mexican kid rose up to go, to go to graduate school and secure big jobs at blue chip corporations. How did you navigate these two worlds? What made you successful? And, you know, it's obvious, I'm, I'm an African-American man, so you know this question is coming from a very knowing place. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you navigate uh, you know, treacherously, right? I mean, it, it, there's always a, uh, a degree of, of having to be something different in the workplace while staying true to your roots. And there are, were times, honestly, where I would forget my roots because it was just, it, it was, you know, it, it was, easier to do that uh, so that I could be the person that people wanted me to work. The mistake there was I was trying to be things that I thought people wanted me to be. I over-indexed on being overly serious, overly controlling, knowing that I could never fail at anything lest I be called out for my heritage and background. And that's, I think, one of the parts that really affects minorities that people don't always understand. Um, I. Clearly, as you have the full capabilities to do anything uh, anybody else can do, but we lived in a time where people didn't necessarily give you that chance. So I tried extra hard. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the early first African-American pilots at United, a guy named Bill Norwood, uh, famously said a long time ago, as he grew up in the South and those Jim Crow eras, 
He says, you know, you learn very early in life that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Now, I didn't know that quote when I was young, but I knew in my instincts that no matter what anybody else was doing, I had to do more. I had to work extra hard and I had to do those. And so that's what propelled me in the early days. And then over the course of time, through a couple of moments in my life where I became cognizant of the fact that I was killing myself, trying to be someone that others wanted me to be. And I learned to what I term swing easy uh, in my career and in my life. And it was amazing to see my career take off even more so as I, as I, you know, as I embraced others around me and people began, began to know me as a, uh, just as a, as a key leader in the company and one that people love to work with. You know, it's, it's that, that burden of perfection, as I wrote down here uh, uh, in, the mar in the margins here, um, that is something that I talked with Chastin Buttigieg about in, in talking about his memoir uh, that he rewrote for young adults. But that burden of perfection for people of color and people who are not part of the quote-unquote ma mainstream. So let's, let's fast forward, leap ahead. Um, you've done all these things, and now you, are, you take the helm of United Airlines in 2015. What was the state of United Airlines, and what were your goals going in? I think the state was a place where uh, it was a turnaround situation, so everything was broken. Uh, financial results, operating results, customer relations uh, were all, in essence, in a fairly uh, low place. Um, what I quickly found is that beyond those things, the cause for them was not a lack of trying or professionalism of good people trying to do the wrong thing, is A, there was no direction, and even more importantly, what I began to sense quickly is that our very own employees had gotten to a place where they were disillusioned, certainly disengaged and very much disenfranchised uh, because they had had uh, several CEOs before my time period where people had promised or said all the right things and then nothing manifested. And it seemed like everything was coming down and the burden was on them. And so very quickly, I had a sense that before I launched into anything, I had to really listen to the people that provide the service, learn from them before I chose the path where I would want to lead. And so, you know, Jonathan, I did not have a prescription. I, I thought I did, but as I began to, to, to talk and, and see people, I, I sensed that need to get a little bit more detail. And so I went out on a listening tour where, again, everybody sounds, well, you went to listen to people. That sounds so trite and, and this and say, you know, listening, really listening, and learning from that is a very difficult task. It is time consuming. Um, you have to be a genuine person in a, in a way that when you ask somebody what they're doing, you have to sit there and listen to what they're saying. You just can't blow it off or try to answer immediately. And you know, growing up, like, this is where my heritage and background really comes into play because I grew up in an environment where people were treated like people. I didn't live in a world of, of a caste system where there was you know, people that lived in rich houses. You know, Everybody around me, essentially, certainly in Mexico, was of the same socioeconomic background. So you learn to appreciate and understand and, in essence, trust people on their very merits of their human dynamic, not what they did. And uh, for me, as I began to listen to our folks, a lot of that upbringing of mine came into play. And I think it projected into a very genuine desire to listen for them and, and inevitably you know, set the right course and direction of how we got our United Turnaround started. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna detour not to use a <laughs> well air, airline lingo here. Um, but what you were saying about about listening 
and truly listening to people um, reminded me of what you wrote about your grandmother, Mama Josefina, who you say had no formal education, but it was from her um, that you learn all the values that you have, and in particular, to empathize with people who are not who are not like you at all. Yes, uh, she's uh, she's the hero in the book to some degree, as people like to say, and uh, an incredible, incredible influence in my life. And again, a simple woman. Uh, uh, I was born in Mexico. I never knew my father. My mom left with my uncle uh, with all her documents to make a better life for herself to eventually bring me. But that takes time. So I spent you know, the first seven or eight years of my life with her. And uh, she did not have a specific job or a specific home. But you know, in our wonderful Latin heritage, the term familia is such a deeply resonant one. And I never in my youth felt that we were anything but full of love and embracement. We went to many homes. I remember many train and bus trips and even the dusty trail walking and holding her horse in hand, not knowing where we were going, but knowing that the doors would open. And, and inevitably when my uncle, after getting things settled uh, for my grandmother, came to get us and, and the U.S. In, in, in essence opened its doors to me. And that's how the story begins. But uh, clearly that upbringing, uh, her work ethic, her desire to protect and, and comfort and nurture me at whatever cost gave me such strength and of conviction in my own abilities that, you know, it's, there's just impossible to be anything but for other people. And in a world where I worked, uh, certainly at the, at the airline and, and to a degree in either roles, uh, a lot of the folks that work in that front line are uh, minorities and a, majority, a, a major part of them are indeed Latin in some way. And uh, that that helps a lot, right? When you walk into a room full of people and you look different than someone before, you, you look more like them, you can speak their language and know their culture, uh, certainly was a benefit. But again, that's just the start. You have to do so much more than that. But my values and my ability to listen and learn and empathize came from that upbringing. In fact, you write in the book about uh, part of the listening tour took you to Newark Liberty Airport, EWR, which was my my um, childhood airport, and walking into the, the catering facility and seeing the, the workers there and the looks on their faces and how you, um, you could see the pride in their faces of seeing someone who looks like them being in the role of CEO and including seeing someone in the crowd who reminded you of your, of your grandmother. But, you know, there's one other thing you wrote about um, in terms of this being a turnaround when you came into to United and you're doing this listening tour, you found out how important coffee is um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to the passengers to the point where one flight attendant told you that she refused to serve the coffee to passengers. Talk about that, the importance of coffee. You know, um, the issue with with um with a business or a product or anything that you do is that if you let it get bad enough, every little single thing becomes a big thing. And I'm not a coffee drinker, but I have learned quickly that it is a very important thing. In our method of, in our desire to cost cut and do different things, we know we found apparently in my, by my predecessors, a, a cheaper form of coffee. And the flying customers really reacted because it was yet another thing in the long line of ills, right? I'm not on time, I don't have food, and now you're serving me crummy coffee. Uh, and, 
and one of the first things I did in the company is like, just tell me the top 10 dumbest things we've done in the last couple of years that are, you know, that are, that we need to reverse. Um, coffee was one of them. It's like, I don't, you know, it's like the anger that's been growing up. And so for me, it was simple. It's like, let's change the coffee. It's just, you know, and do it a big thing. Have a, have a, you know, have a, a contest, bring in the top companies of coffee in the world and have customers taste tested. And, you know, no matter what we pick, you know, people will feel like they were part of the solution. And it was a, as a quick, easy thing to do. Uh, and so, you know, coffee became an important uh, topic. But again, the important part, only because so many other things were broken. Now, you can always withstand, you know, little bumps in the road. But when everything is broken, you know, we had gone to a place where everybody was wondering, like, oh, my God, what's wrong with United now? And uh, rapidly moved to kind of a more of an exciting, like, what's next for, you know, like what next new innovation, next new product offering, next new exciting, fun thing is going to happen. And so, you know, it, it's, it's quite the journey with, 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 with customers and their many sentiments and many desires. Uh, you can't, you cannot provide everything to everyone, but you got to get some of the basic things right. The most basic thing is the trust that you actually care about them as a paying customer. And we have lost that to a large degree. So let's talk about Amy. She was a, a Denver-based flight attendant, uh, veteran uh, of the company. And she says, she was, there, there she is there uh, in the photograph that we're showing. Um, she says she was tired of apologizing. Talk more about that. What, what was she referencing there? Well, so a broader context, Jonathan, is that so it's part of a listening tour. I'm out everywhere trying to figure out in turnarounds, I have learned that the, the first thing you pick to fix, everything's broken. You got to pick the right thing to start with and use that as a platform for everything that you want to do. And as you can imagine, everyone has a different viewpoint and opinion about what that might be. I had a sense from talking with custom, with my employees that disengaged, disenfranchised, disillusioned sort of comment from before. So I, I, said, I said loudly, it's like, listen, before we make a choice of what we're going to do, I'm going to go listen to the people that actually take care of you and learn from them what it is that it might be that we need to fix. So I'm out doing all of this. And of course, um, you know, it's a, it's a well-laid plan, but one that wasn't bearing fruits because all I was getting was increments and large increments of more issues that needed to be fixed. So I wasn't able to narrow this down. So very nervously, I'm heading back to Chicago and this, this you know, incredibly fortunate moment that, and again, to not be overly dramatic, but was really the basis for United's turnaround I, I went up to her and I said, hi, I'm Oscar. It's like, you know, how, you know, just wanted to see your viewpoint. And, and uh, it took a little coaxing, but she finally, in a very emotional, tearful, angry way, said the words, Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. And to your question, what it meant is, you know, she didn't choose the coffee. She didn't choose the food. She didn't run the airline. So I'm sorry for the coffee. I'm sorry for the food. I'm sorry we're late again. I'm sorry you can't sit with your peacock and all the other crazy things that we deal within the industry. But, but you think of a human coming to work every day for so many long and having to bear that burden of always having to apologize for something they didn't do. Yet, on the other hand, we as management or the different levels of management are going, you know, you need to be the brand and we're friendly skies and we have to project that. And so you're being told to do all these things that are very incongruent with how we are treating them and their involvement in serving our customer. And so, at that early stage in life, I had a sense that our direction was, in essence, to regain the trust of our employees. 
and but that would take some socializing because uh, as you can imagine um, investors uh, that doesn't compute that sounds like money uh, customers are like wait what about us my board uh, is thinking okay did we pick the right person to do this job but again it was the voice the very voice of every single person that takes care of you in the airline that is, is drove the early strategy that led to the broader strategy that led to the United that is there today, here today. And, and just so it doesn't just drop by the wayside, your reference to the peacock is about the, the, the famous story of the person who tried to bring on an emotional support animal, an emotional support peacock onto a United Airlines flight. So in this whole conversation, Mr. Munoz, we've been talking about um, your listening tour and how that informed your being able to move United Airlines into the position that is that it's in today, uh, what is this, sort of seven years, eight years later. But just 37 days into the job, you have a heart attack. What was the impact on that uh, impact of that on you, not just professionally, but personally? Well, uh, clearly not something I would recommend. Uh, and I'd be uh, remiss if I don't offer just a short PSA with the concept of what heart disease means in America. It is the largest single killer by far of any other disease in America. And it kills so many people because the symptoms are many and varied. And most of us, not knowing that we maybe have a history of heart disease, will in essence disregard those symptoms. We will lay down, we will crawl back into bed, we'll jump in the shower, only to have that blockage, in essence, cut uh, blood critical blood supply to your various organs, and then, in essence, you 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 die. And so we should all know that. Um, I had a friend who was a cardiovascular surgeon who, uh, you know, I was I was a relatively fit weekend warrior. I had just raced in a hundred mile bike race two weeks before. I was a vegan for all crazy things, uh, and so not necessarily your prototypical sort of heart attack victim, but. My friend said the magic words, and I share them with you and your audience because it has helped many people get through this and live in the sense that he said, you know, if you ever feel anything weird because of these various symptoms, you know, just call 911. The worst you can be is embarrassed. And then he added, and when you call 911, immediately tell them where you are, which made sense. Then he added the really dramatic piece that says, because you may not make it past the phone call. And I remember mm -hmm. where I was and what he said, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of dramatic. But you fast forward a couple of years, 37 days into the job, I'm just coming back from this listening tour. I have this sense of direction. I'm meeting with union leaders and uh, I'm interviewing a, a CFO candidate. So I'm getting ready to work now. We're, we're gonna go at this thing. And I go for a run. And as I'm making my protein, vegan protein shake, I, uh, I hear my phone buzz across the room. Uh, as I turn to go, it, to, to go to it, my legs uh, began to feel a little, uh, uh, rubbery, if you will. I took two more steps and my legs, in essence, gave out. I held on to uh, the, the cabinet, for, but then I also became a little clammy. So these are my symptoms. So they're not necessarily everybody's symptoms. It's important to know. I somehow crawled to my landline. Uh, you may remember what that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, everyone, not everyone does. Uh, call 911, tell them where I was, and then uh, somehow crawled to the front door of my apartment, a temporary apartment, to let the, uh, to let the EMTs know. So 37 days into the job, this happens. 37 minutes, again, you cannot make these stories up. You can, but uh, uh, 37 minutes later, I am on life support, uh, medically induced coma on a heart, artificial heart lung machine. Um, and so timing is everything in this regard. 
And so did I have an extra five minutes or 20 minutes? I, I'll never know, but I was fortunate to get to you know, a world-class uh, heart place very quickly and then get on that machine. And then the story goes, you know, I, I recovered from the coma a few weeks and then uh, inevitably leading to a heart transplant uh, a couple of months later, then the heart arriving on the day of my birthday. On the morning of my birthday, I got a call from the doctors saying that they had a, quote, kick-ass heart for me. Uh, and which also culminated on the day, the morning later that morning, where we made the determination at United about our, our big initial strategy to regain the trust of our employees, if you remember that story. And it had taken that long an illness to get everybody uh, aligned. And I had my whole leadership team there. And that morning, as we went through all the different things, they, they not me, decided that that was the next direction, which was critically important for me because I, I knew I was going in for a transplant, but no one else did. And I, I wanted them to have that direction uh, till I returned, of course, assuming I returned. So at lunchtime, we made that decision. I stood up and said, hey, guys, I don't have to step away for a little bit. Uh, I got to go to the hospital for this little thing we've been waiting for. And uh, I said uh, uh, words that in, in reflection are more meaningful than I thought. And I said, I'll see you on the other side. And now realizing the double entendre there that that could be. Uh, and so <laughs> it was, it's a wonderful story in that regard. But uh, that's the story of the heart. Did it alter the way you uh, lead, the way you your leadership at United once you were on the uh, other side? Yeah, thank you. No, I, I know that was the question, but I had to give that PSA, and I get that that's an important one to share. You know, an organ is an organ, and so the, the practical medical aspects of that, it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't do much else uh, necessarily other than give you life. And the concept of being given life is an important, you can't deny the fact that indeed uh, my level of gratitude for being on this side uh, is, an, is an important and obviously a blessing. Uh, but I did learn some things, especially being in the hospital. Um, I, had a, I had a nurse in the middle of the night kind of explain to me when, the, you know, you, you get to meet these folks because they take care of you and they live with life and death situations every, every day. And she, she kind of categorized her, her critical employee, uh, critical uh, patients in the sense that everybody always asks the why question, like, you know, hey, why did this happen to me? And uh, some people are more forceful in saying, why did this happen to me? I, I'm angry um, and defiant. And then there's people that say, realize what they've just been through and ask the question, why was I spared? Because for all, you know, all my doctors will tell you, I shouldn't be here. And so why was I spared? And this is where the United family comes back into play with the incredible level of an outpouring of affection and, and notes and cards and flowers that arrived to me every day that my kids would read to me. Uh, just ratified and confirmed to me that the people at United, the very people that service you, had this deep heart, this deep pride, and lots of professionalism. They just needed leadership and guidance and someone to listen to them and so they and someone they could trust. So it Does did it not say, change me. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, finish. Ahead, it didn't John. change you. Yeah, no. It, you know, yeah. I, people that have known me before and know me now, I'm the same person. Um, but it did, those critical lessons, life lessons in my heart, uh, really made me just more, so much more appreciative of things around me, for sure. I was double checking on the time. This is so good. We've got like two two minutes left, but let me get you on on news of day. As you know, Title 42, uh, the Trump era policy that turned migrants away at the U.S.-Mexico border um, <clears throat> during COVID is set to expire late night on May 11th. Officials are expecting a, a significant surge of migrants at the border trying to cross in the coming days. Uh, what's your hope 
for these migrants? Oh, this is such an emotionally laden question. It's obviously on my background in heritage. So anything I say, everybody say, well, of course you would say that. Um, I, I think my hope is that we begin to address these types of situations, not from a position of, of, of polar opposites, right? Left and right, very politicized, uh, hate on one side. Uh, if, if we just accepted the fact that human beings in this planet are being affected, they're lining up to do some, can we not start that from how do we help these folks? It, 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 you know, immigration policy may or, not, may or may not be necessarily direct, the direct answer, but we start every conversation from such extremes that nothing's ever going to get done. And these people are going to keep coming to the border and there's going to keep, you know, we're going to have to keep having these surges. What is the longer term solution? I am not smart enough to do that, but my practical and realistic side that says just fighting all the time and not making any movement towards some sort of solution is just not. It, it's just never, this thing's, it's never going to end for us. And in the interim, you know, we do what we can. Um, I, I refuse to separate children from their parents in the earlier era of this, of this story uh, because it, we just didn't think it was right and it affected, you know, you know, humans in a way that we didn't see yet doing. So there's things we all can do that help it. But the broader policy issue is just so riddled and, and muddied in hate for each other that it's just, it's, it's intractable. The positions of both sides. One more news of day question. This week, the Transportation Department said it was proposing a rule that would require airlines to provide cash payments to passengers for significant flight disruptions. I like the idea as a passenger, but do you, as uh, executive chairman of a major national airline? Uh, I'll tell you the, the facts behind it, at least from a United perspective, is our number of delays and cancellations that, that, that our own causing are very few. And in fact, for this first three months of the year, we were the best airline in not canceling or delaying anything. So, uh, but inevitably things do. And at those times, we want to do anything and everything we can for our employees. And that's the plain fact. Uh, now, to the point of this, this proposed rulemaking, the, uh, the government has offered the headline, but no details. So all of those details will come. The airlines will get involved in the conversation for sure. But again, from the perspective of, of an airline person who wants to make your flights safe and comfortable and on time, there is no benefit. There is no value to us delaying you or making you wait in the tarmac. We don't want to do that. And so, fine, put it upon us. There are broader issues that the government can do. Air traffic control system in this country is outdated. We mm -hmm. should be working towards those things. Those are meaningful, tactical. That is proof, not just promise of something. We can pass the buck and blame each other all that we want. And, you know, the airlines will pay a little bit of money every time. But it's not going to fix the real issue is that we have some infrastructure issues. And they're not just in the air, but certainly on, on the ground as well, that I think we'd be better suited. And that's back to how, how our government works and how we are divided on so many topics. that Nothing right. ever moves forward. And that's the frustration right. that we all have. Okay, last question is gonna be three rapid fire questions and they're fun, they're fun. Okay. Okay, here's the first one. What's the best seat on a plane? Uh, for me, it's an aisle seat so I can get up and talk to customers and talk to our crew. <laughs> what should you never eat on a plane? Not just you, us, what shouldn't we eat on a plane? Uh, something you're allergic to, <laughs> food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you, you can eat anything you want. It's a free one. <laughs> okay. All, all right. 
you're not playing you're not playing ball but here's the last one this one i i hope this will be fun is there really a way to schmooze your way into an empty seat in first class there is not uh you know with uh, technology in particular allows us to give the right people have the right uh the right mileage uh designation uh to offer them that 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 benefit and so uh, i think uh in the past, people have been wanting to do that, but our systems are now so packed so that, you know, it's got to be a meritocracy to some degree. And people that fly more are, and are loyal to us, uh, we're always going to want to give them a little bit of extra benefit when that benefit's available. And so uh, try as you might, our systems are generally going to stop that from happening nowadays. <laughs> Oscar Munoz, author of Turnaround Time, Uniting an Airline and its Employees in the Friendly Skies and the executive chair of United Airlines. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Jonathan, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.